guys know what I'm talking about? Like one of those miniature SUVs, and it's open, and it's got spotlights on it and everything. And he's been telling me for like a year, you got to stay late at one of our parties and play the hunt with us. Okay, yeah, 44-year-old woman, she can play the hunt. I'll go down with the best of them. He said, here's how you play. This is my brother. You know, he's in his 30s. He said, he and my nephew Jake were going to get in the side-by-side with the spotlights on it. We're playing this after 9 o'clock. It's pitch black out in the boondocks. They've got acres of land. He said, what you guys do is the rest of you, including you, Shelly, you go hide somewhere, anywhere on the property, front or backyard. And we come around with a side-by-side, and we start shining the spotlights. And if we get the spotlight on you and we can grab you and nab you, then you have to get in the side-by-side and you're out. And, and it's so obnoxious because when they catch people, my brother makes this terrible noise. Spotlight shines on you. You start to run. They're like speeding up, grabbing after you. You nearly get run over. And he makes this terrible noise. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. Get in the back of the court. Okay, over this megaphone. So here's me. I thought, they are never going to get me. I am going to outdo everybody on the hunt. All right? So I find this place down at the edge of this property, kind of in a ditch where his giant garbage can is. I get down in my black clothing. Unfortunately, it was my Adidas wear, which has reflectors on it. Okay? So I get down in my dark clothing, and I hide. I, I I crawl down behind, you know, I'm behind the garbage can. I'm thinking, they will never find me. Whatever angle they come at, I'll just move behind the garbage can. So I'm crouched on. They're off of a main road. They have a little side road to their house. They're off of a main roadway. After being crouched down on my very sore knees for about 20 minutes, I thought, what if cars come down the main road and somebody sees me crouched here? And what are they going to do? I said, I hope nobody comes down their particular road. Nobody did. About two cars in all that period of time came down the main road. And finally it happened. A third car, they weren't finding me. They were frustrated. I could hear them on the megaphone. Still can't find Aunt Shelley. Meanwhile, many other people had been captured. Woo, woo. I'm like, yes. And all of a sudden this car comes down the main road. And I feel its headlights like slowing down. Has this person seen me? And then all of a sudden, this car sped by me, went up my brother's driveway. And as soon as it went up the driveway, the side-by-side comes down with all of its spotlights on. Woo, woo, get in the vehicle, Aunt Shelly. What just happened? I'm going to tell you what happened. A business owner from down the road went up, pulled up into my brother's driveway, and said this to my brother. I was a sniper in the Army, and there's somebody casing your house. And I was caught. Okay, so I'm lucky to be here. I was not shot. I was not arrested. I'm happy to be here. I wasn't here this morning because I was preaching out at a church in Latrobe, a Presbyterian church, and that was a really neat time, except the sticker on my back, I'm a marked woman, I tell you. Not only did that happen last evening, but I worked with an elder there at the church that I spoke at. I was in Christian schooling with him, and he's the only person that might be a bigger math nerd than me that loves Jesus. And he was um, talking to me for months about what they were looking for in the message, and that's how this message kind of developed and came to be. So I preached pretty much the same message I'm going to do tonight, except tonight will be a little bit more extended. But when I was done speaking this morning, he came up to me. He just thanked me. You know, he said, thank you so much. It was exactly what I think the Holy Spirit was wanting to say. And he said, I've been wanting to say it at our church for so long. He goes, but I'll tell you. That's the kind of message that a prophet could never speak in their own home church. I said, pray for me, sir. (laughs) Okay, so here I am tonight, and if you bring up the PowerPoint, this message is, I'm saved. I'll be judged, too. And I'm thankful for the crowd of people that's here tonight, because you guys are showing by your being here that you are interested in knowing, even if it's going to be difficult news, what is the news about Christians being judged. And I want to start um, right off the bat with prayer, ask the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts, and I want this to come straight from his word. I would never play around with you in any way and say anything that was only my opinion. I want this to come straight from his word. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we are so grateful 
for our church here, for Norman Alliance Church. We are grateful for the opportunity to live in a place where we can still proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, Father, I think many times there is a watered-down version of the gospel being spoken, and there are so many things that are being ignored. But every verse in the Bible comes from you, and we need to pay close attention to all that you said. And sometimes some of the problems and issues and heartaches and emptiness in our life results from the fact that we're ignoring some of the things that you've said. So I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, as you have worked this sermon in my own heart and convicted me and worked on me for months, Lord, as I've labored through this, I pray that you would do the same for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here tonight who long to know you better than they do today. That's our prayer. We want to know you. We want to please you. We want to live life the way you intend us to live it. And we want to live for what matters. We recognize this life is not long. And that soon and very soon, soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help every one of us, whether we're 90 years old or 9 years old, and I thank you for the young ones in the sanctuary tonight. We need your truth. So please cleanse us. Please open up our hearts to hear what you have to say. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as always, I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures here, make a lot of points and references. And if you would like a copy of the PowerPoint, You can see me or email me, and we can certainly get that to you, in case you don't want to be bogged down writing a lot of things. I'm saved. I'll be judged, too. Okay, this is not a title for seeker-friendly ministries, all right, but it is an important thing. And the first thing that I want to do is put first things first, because when you're going to share a message like this, I want to make it abundantly clear That when a human being believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and by believe, I don't just mean mental assent. I mean you believe it to the point where you stake your life on it. When a human being believes that God crashed into the universe in the person of Jesus Christ, that the God-man came to the earth and gave his life away to bear the punishment, I'll put myself in this place, to bear the punishment for Shelley Prindle's sins, If I believe that with my whole heart, that my punishment took place on the cross in the God-man, Jesus Christ, then I am saved, and I will not be going to hell, but I will be going to heaven. Amen? Now, that's an assurance. And one of the clearest verses in the Bible that can take you there is Jesus' own words in John 5, 24. He said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, He that heareth my word... And believeth on my Father who sent me, shall have everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And I want you to remember that phrase, because we're going to come back to it. So it is without a doubt 100% true, that if you have believed on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and I mean you truly believe that with your life, you are saved. And you will not come into condemnation, but you are going to be passed from death unto life. Hallelujah. Right? We should get some amens there. However, yeah, start amening now because it's going to go all downhill from here. No. Okay, so that's good news. The rest of this is really good news. Actually, when you study your accountability to God, it makes your life better. It makes your life better. You start to live for what really matters. Now, here's the deal. Although this is true, it is also true from Scripture without a doubt that Christians are accountable to God and will answer for the life that we have lived since our salvation. How many of you know that's true? Okay, that's true. So the question becomes, after the miracle, and I do mean miracle, if you're truly saved, you understand that it is the greatest miracle in the universe that your sin would be taken on by God. Amen? And that your guilt would be washed away. So when that truly happens to a person, the question then becomes, after this takes place, how do we invest our lives? Because if that change has truly taken place, if my sins have truly been taken on Jesus Christ and I am free from the burden of my guilt and now have a reason to live, 
If that's really happened to me, you would think that I would be investing my life in that endeavor for all people. Amen? And the fact that many people are not, the fact that people can get saved supposedly and totally forget about that part makes you wonder sometimes if salvation has truly taken place. Now, here's the deal. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 are some of the most famous verses that are quoted. And I'm going to go there and just say, Jesus in these scriptures said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Now, a lot of people don't realize Jesus made a pretty scientific statement there because he named three categories. He said, don't invest in material stuff of this world because three things can happen. Living things can deteriorate what you have. Non-living things can deteriorate what you have. And human beings who sin against human beings can take away and deteriorate what you have. You realize he said that? Moths are very tiny, but they can wreak a lot of havoc. Amen? So moths are living, and they can deteriorate material things. Uh, rust is chemical processes. It's oxidation. That's chemicals, non-living things, deteriorating things we have. And we, when we sin against each other, can take away what we have. So Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in this world. Don't focus on what you can accumulate here and now, because in the end, it's all going away. Amen? And we all know that's true, but a lot of people ignore the verse that follows it. it do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. But Jesus said, but do. Now listen to this. He said, but do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now when I said, do you believe moths? And rust can ruin your stuff here on earth. Everybody with rust on their car said, amen. Everybody with Nike tennis shoes that are wearing out said, amen. I believe that. But do you believe the second part? Do you believe that just as real as the stuff wears away down here, you can build a reward in heaven? He says, and he gets really specific. He says, where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, I just have to pause at this point because everywhere I go, people say, re-emphasize that. Half the people in the universe don't know it. When we get to heaven, we are going to have real bodies. We're going to enjoy real stuff. It's the new heaven and the new earth. So Jesus said, do invest in heavenly reward. He said, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be, after all. Now, Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, corroborated what Jesus said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He said, we've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance, now listen to this, that is incorruptible, undefiled, and fadeth not away. Okay, so he's saying basically the same thing. He's saying, you can build up and have an inheritance in another place. And by the way, Jesus did call it a place, didn't he? As I say to my youth group, and they love when I do this, when you go to heaven, it's not like you're, yes, Shaylin, you love this, okay? Yeah. Shaylin's already doing it. Look at Shaylin. Go ahead, Shaylin. It's not like when you go to heaven, you're going to be woo, floating around like some ghost somewhere, you know, with nothing really much to do. Okay, that's not what heaven is about. He says, you're going to get an inheritance there. It's going to be incorruptible. It can't deteriorate, can't disintegrate, can't decay. It is uh, undefiled. It cannot be abused. It cannot be misused like people and things are here on this earth, and it never fades away. So Peter's getting real serious with us. He's saying there is a real reward or an inheritance in heaven that you are going to. Now, following on the heels of that, just 13 verses after that, Listen to what Peter says, because this is largely what the church of Jesus Christ has lost sight of. R.C. Sproul was speaking the other morning. I was listening to him. He was talking about the fear of the Lord, and he said, most people think the fear of the Lord is old-fashioned and just Old Testament. Eh. Nothing will make your life more exciting and more meaningful than a healthy fear of the Lord. Amen? Peter said in 1 Peter 1.17, he said, since you, and he's talking to Christians, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. How many of you would say when you go to bed at night, you would describe your day as having been lived in reverent fear of God? See that? 
He said, live your lives as a stranger here. Know that you don't really fit in here and that the way you should be living, the bent of your heart should be that you are in a reverent fear of God, understanding that he judges each man's work impartially. Now, I used to try to describe this to my students when I taught in Christian school this way. Because a lot of the students would say, oh, Mrs. Prindle, you know, uh, I'm coming to you for advice because you teach Bible. And, I mean, you travel to churches and you speak and you've done this and that. So, I mean, like you must be like really doing the right thing. And I'd say, you know what? Whether or not I am being faithful to the call of God on my life by way of motivation and fulfillment, you have no idea. Only God knows. Only God knows why I get up and I speak. Only God knows the motivations of my heart. And only God knows whether I'm investing my time and my affections the way God expects me to truly do so. God judges each man's work impartially. We tend to be partial to people. You know, we're we're partial to people just if they have the right kind of clothes on or they look a certain way, aren't we? And in Christianity, we tend to be partial and think, well, she or he, they must really, when they stand before God, they're going to really have it easy. It's going to be good for them. You don't know that. Only God can judge a man or a woman impartially. Now, that goes in the positive and the negative way. Because when I was talking about this message to somebody, they said, well, Shelley... You know, your calling seems to be to preach and teach and write about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're faithful to that, will you get more reward than me? Because God called me to raise kids in the home and to not be in ministry. I said, no, my reward won't be any greater than you if you are faithful to what God called you to. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, The measure, the test, For whether you get rewarded is your faithfulness to your calling. That's all it is. And God judges that impartially. Dr. Erwin Lutzer wrote a terrific book. And in that book he said, because God knows all things, he'll take all the contingencies into account. He will take a careful look at your life, how you were impacted by your parents, the positive or negative effect that others had on you, and every other relevant factor as you stand before him. His evaluation will be accurate and fair. And everybody said, amen. Okay? People point fingers at you and judge you based on certain things, and they have no idea what the experiences of your life have been or how far you've come with God. Amen? But God knows. Okay? So he judges each man's work impartially. Now, investing in the miracle, I just mentioned this, um, is 1 Corinthians 4.2. The standard is simply faithfulness. Now, I want to move on. To the sections of scripture which make very clear to us that we as Christians will stand in judgment before God for the lives we have lived since our salvation. Okay? Each of us, and I've bolded there each of us, individually. If you're a teenager here, you won't stand with your Christian mom and dad to be judged. Amen? If you're a husband here, you can't hold your wife's hand when you're being judged. It would be each of us giving an account of, to ourselves, uh, of ourselves to God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 14. This is the first major text that we'll go to. Romans chapter 14. Okay, Romans chapter 14. Uh, while you're turning there, just let me give you the context. The context of Romans 14 is Paul is talking about uh, some stuff that's going on in the church is not good in terms of uh, matters of opinion. For example, he says some people who are Christians believe that Christians can eat certain foods and other Christians may say, no, that's wrong if you eat a certain kind of food. And Paul says the bottom line is we shouldn't be judging each other over this. Okay. Particularly, particularly if you look in verse 3, Paul says, Let not the one who thinks it's okay to eat the food despise the person who doesn't think it is. And let not the one who stays away from the food pass judgment on the one who thinks it's okay. Now, these are matters of opinion. You know, uh, what are some of the classic matters of opinion? And as some Christians say, a Christian should never go into a movie theater. And other people say, no, that's okay. So when it comes to matters of opinion, Paul is saying you shouldn't be passing judgment on each other. Now look at verse 7. 
Here's the reason he gives. He says, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Now, this is an interesting statement, and it convicted me, because if I said, how many people in this room, raise your hand if you desire to die to the Lord, if you want to fall into the arms of God and know that you are totally belonging to him when you die, how many would say yes? Amen. Bring it on. When I'm on my deathbed, I want to die to the Lord. Amen. He's my safety and my protection. You know what else this is saying, though? You know the part we miss? You can't just die to the Lord. You have to what? You have to live to the Lord. It strikes me as so amazing how people can claim to be Christians or get saved and then think, oh, my life belongs to me. I want to watch football games all afternoon, all day long, reruns of Andy Griffith, that's me. You know, all day long, do whatever I want with my life. I don't have to invest in prayer that much. I'll do a token devotion in the morning. Won't worry about two. I don't have to be, I'm just, I'm just free in the Lord. Listen, you don't live to yourself. You live to God. You answer to Him. If you die, you die to the Lord. If you live, you live to the Lord. Amen? That's what he's saying. Now, now check this out. He says in verse, um, in verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again. Why did Christ die and live again? That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He's your Lord. He's your master. And then Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? And I love that question. It's a rhetorical question. And how many of us have ever done it? Who's ever sat around a table or been on their cell phone or met in the corner of the church somewhere or sat in Panera Bread and said, can you believe so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. And we start passing judgment on each other. Paul says, why are you doing that? And here's what I think Paul would say to us if he were here in person. He would say, you got enough to worry about with yourself. Don't you think that's what he's trying to get at? Why are you passing judgment on each other? Look at what he says. For it is, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You see what I'm saying? I don't need to walk around and try to be Cindy's judge and Diane's judge and Joe's judge. Look, I can't be anybody's judge. I'm gonna be judged. It's about time Christians stop worrying about other Christians and start worrying about themselves. If you realize what a serious thing it was, what was going to happen to you when you stood before the Lord Jesus Christ and answered for every word you ever spoke, we'd be a little more careful, wouldn't we? I wouldn't have time to be worrying about everybody else and their brother. That's what Paul says. Now look, he goes on in verse 11. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, look at this, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, John 3.16 is true, and they plaster it all over sports games. But guess what? Romans 14 is true, too. And every one of us in this sanctuary will stand and give an account of him or herself to God. This is not a game. All right? So some main points. No one lives or dies to himself. We live and die to the Lord no matter how we pretend otherwise. And I have enough to be concerned with in me rather than to be judging you. Now, the other thing I want to point out to you is when this verse says, each of us will give an account of himself to God... Hebrews 4.13 uses the exact same Greek word for account there. Now, let me just tell you what Hebrews 4.13 says. I'm going to start at verse 12. You're going to know this scripture as soon as I start it. You're going to know the first one. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.13. For there is no creature hidden from his sight. This is some kind of verse. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare. In the Greek, you get the sense of naked. 
before the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account. You with me? You get two verses tied together there that are pretty strong, that are saying to the Christian, you are going to give an account of yourself. And the Greek word there is the word logos, which literally means in this sense, a judgment is pronounced on you, and you have to stand and give an explanation for yourself. So I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and give an answer for the way I've invested my words, my time, my affections, my minutes, my money, my life since my salvation. Can you imagine? And here's what I picture me doing. So Jesus is going to start, you know, give me an accounting of this and that. And I get the feeling this will be my, uh, this will be my defense. Okay, that's what I think. Okay. But I am going to have to give an accounting. And that makes me live differently when I think about it, when I put it in the forefront of my mind. I remember once I shared a message on a Sunday morning called uh, here called Pondering the End to Engage the Present. You want to live in the present, right? Think about the end. God's always telling us that, isn't he? We like, don't we like to put the end out of our minds? Oh, I don't need to exercise today. I'll start the exercise program tomorrow. My health will come on a different day. With me, it's my blood sugar. I struggle with my blood sugar. I want to give up and say, I'll get my blood sugar better tomorrow. We always want to put things off. That's a bad way to live. Ponder what's going to happen in the end to do right in the present. And God is always telling us in his word about that. Now, what I want you to focus on in your Bibles, you may want to underline it. Twice in the New Testament, the same Greek word is used for the judgment seat. And right here it's in Romans chapter 14, verse 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This is one other place in the Bible, and it is called the judgment seat of Christ. It's referring to the same event because, of course, God and Christ are one. And I want to take you there in a minute. But first I want to show you something. It's referred to as the judgment seat of God in Romans 14.10, and it's referred to as the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10. In both cases, the Greek word behind the phrase judgment seat is the same, and it is a word, bema, all right? And it doesn't just refer to the judgment seat of God. It is the word that is used to refer to Pontius Pilate when he stood and dealt with Jesus. He stood at... The judgment seat. It was, it was an earthly judgment seat in his case. King Herod stood up on the judgment seat. And the Greek word comes from a word, it literally means like set up on steps. So you'd have to look up to the judge who was up there to judge you, and you'd have to answer to that judge. Now, being in courtrooms and facing judges is not a pleasant thing. Amen? But can you imagine facing Jesus Christ, who knows everything? In two places in the Bible, Romans and 2 Corinthians, that word judgment seat, which also refers to earthly judgment seats, is applied to God himself. And it's speaking of a divine judgment of believers, saved people. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.10 and let's look at it there. Because the best way... To study scripture is to let scripture interpret itself. So we go to the other place that we find it, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And Paul is speaking here, uh, verses 1 through 9 are wonderful scriptures. And all of us who are getting older love these scriptures. He's basically saying, man, I'm groaning in this earthly tent I'm in. And I can't wait to be clothed with my new body. Anybody say amen? Yeah as I use my reading glasses. It's just not right that somebody who can win in the hunt has to wear reading glasses. Do you agree? It's just not right. I didn't actually win because I was found out by an army sniper. Man, I must look very threatening. Okay, so here we go. Um, He's talking about wanting to be clothed with his new body. And verse 6, let's pick it up at verse 6 for context. Paul says, we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Now, I want to I review that for just a minute because Paul is saying something very deep here. He's actually saying, I would rather be out of my earthly body and be with Jesus than stay here. And I, the reason I want that to sink in is I want us to ask ourselves this question. Do we love Jesus that much? How stuck are we to this world and this life? Paul could actually say, I would rather be out of my body and with the Lord, awaiting the resurrection of my body again. And he says, for that reason, whether I'm with him or I'm here, I want to please him because I love him so much. Do you get that feeling from Paul? He's like, I'm so in love with Jesus. I love him that much, so I want to please him. And you think, oh, well, Paul just served the Lord because he just loved him so much. That's why he served him. It was just, it was just pure love, you know. He's just sailing on love all the time. I just love Jesus, so I'm going to do this, and I love Jesus, and so I'm going to do that. That's true. But Paul had another motivation. It's the very next verse. He said, for, or also, you know, therefore, the reason I just said this, the reason I make it my aim to please him. Look what he said in verse 10. Why did Paul want to please the Lord? Because he said, one day I'm going to stand before what? What did he say? The Judgment seat of Christ. Okay? Shelly, that's a bad reason that you shouldn't try to motivate people with negatives. God does. Paul did. He said, look, I want to please him because I must appear. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. Who is this written to? Christians or non-Christians? Christians. I'm going to stand before God and give an accounting for how I lived my life, for the deeds done in the body. All right? This is very real. Now, what I want to do here is I want to pause before I go on to the judgment seat of Christ, which is the main thrust. I want to show you what that looks like, what we're going to be judged for at that judgment seat. I want to make sure that everybody understands the difference between that judgment and the judgment of the unsaved, all right? So up on the um, PowerPoint, I show you the two places that Bema is used to refer to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there's another judgment in the Bible that's called the Great White Throne Judgment. Bible scholars debate whether these things take place simultaneously or whether they take place at a different time. I'm not here to debate that. That's not the issue. The issue is you've got to know the unsaved face a different type of judgment. All right? And I'd like you to turn with me for a minute to Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to pick it up at verse 11. Now, verse 11 is one of my favorite verses. You've heard me quote it before, if you've ever heard me for more than, like, two events. I'm sure you've heard me before with Revelation 20, verse 11. The apostle John gets a vision of heaven, and he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Okay, now, let's just stop right there and think about this for a second. This is a judgment of human beings, okay? And God steps up to judge the living and the dead. And as soon as he steps up to the great white throne, the entire earth runs. Now, whether now whether God means this literally or figuratively, we know from Romans 8 that all of creation groans because it knows it's sin-cursed and it's got to be remade. And so I believe the earth and the sky are literally fleeing from God because they are, they are cursed by sin too and they need to be remade. Amen? So they're not going to be gone forever. Jesus is going to bring them back in and remake them. That's going to be okay. But here's what I want you to understand. So you're a person waiting to be judged by God. And the earth takes off. Hmm. I might be in some serious trouble here. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Okay, this is, and I don't, I'm not meaning to make light of it, but I'm meaning for you to remember this. This is serious. This is not a fairy tale, is it? This is the word of God. So earth and sky flee away and no place is found for them. 
Then, then uh, John says, I saw the dead, great and small. It doesn't matter if you were influential or rich or non-influential or poor. doesn't matter how big your intellect was. The dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and a bunch of books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So you get the sense that there's a bunch of books that have recorded the deeds of people. And a certain group of people are judged by what is written in the books about all that they've done in their lives. But there's another book that's there, and it's called the book of life. Now let's keep going. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead. And sea was a a, a term that... um, the Greeks used, you know, it's talking about everybody, everyone who has ever died. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, the grave, gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. I used to tell my students, this is kind of like everybody who's died and already gone to be out of the presence of the Lord, already gone to hell as we know it, all right, they kind of, death and Hades just vomit up their entire contents for their final judgment. It's kind of like the minute you die, your fate is already sealed, all right? But, you know, you can be arrested for something, and you have to wait your final judgment for your official sentence, but you can already be in jail. You with me? When you die, you're either with the Lord or away from him. But Jesus told us, That every person that dies, whether you're going to heaven or you're going to hell, you're getting your body back. You're going to be judged in your body. Okay? Now, in case, you know, I know a lot of you think I'm crazy. I always say that. But don't think I'm crazy for what I'm saying about this. I want you to keep your thumb in Revelation. Just want to show you what I'm talking about. Go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Interestingly, John, who saw this vision in Revelation wrote something in his gospel by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 5. Look at verse 27. This is Jesus speaking, John chapter 5, verse 27. And he, the Father, has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, I will be the judge because I'm the Son of Man. Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now you guys know, I talk about that a lot. The rapture of the church, second coming of the Lord. Where do I want to be when that happens? By a cemetery or in the middle of one. And I literally have a friend, we talk about all kinds of stuff, and she said, Shelly, I went to my mom's grave not too long ago to put a flower on the grave. And she said, and I just decided to lay myself down in the grass right there by the tombstone and look up in the sky. And I pondered the second coming. And I thought about that day when bodies will come out of the tomb to be resurrected. Amen? Now look at what Jesus said. Jesus said, All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All right? So everybody gets a body and stands before the Lord. So as we go back to Revelation chapter 20, here's what we see happening. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the, what's it say? Lake of fire. Now stay with me here. Listen, here's the deal. Remember John 5:24. If you believe in Jesus, you are passed from death unto life. If you do not believe in Jesus, you are passed from death unto death. Isn't that simple? Okay? You believe in Jesus, you're going from death to life. You do not believe in Jesus, you're going from death to death. And then you will be deposited into the lake of fire where will the beast and the false prophet and Satan will be. So, that's the great white throne judgment of the unsaved. Now, what I did one time is I had a fifth grade teacher come to me and say, my kids are asking, what's the difference between the two judgments? They're asking me, if your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus, how are you going to be judged? Can you help me explain it to fifth graders, Mrs. Prindle? 
Oh, sure. Just let me whip that off. Okay? So after about a week, I went home and I prayed about it. And here's what I came up with. I'm a visual person. This is the visual I created back then. The judgment of the unredeemed or the unsaved, as we just read in Revelation chapter 20, these are people who do not believe in Jesus. They do not have Jesus. He is not... Uh, they haven't put their sins on him on the cross. They have no Jesus. So here's the deal. These people, the sin that they have committed throughout their lives, they have chosen not to put on Jesus but to carry on their own heads. And John 3.36 says that if you do not believe on the Lord, the wrath of God abideth on you. Whoa. And you will carry it forever by yourself. And by the way, that's why hell has to be forever. Because a finite person could never finish paying for their sins. Amen? But an infinite God could pay for it in one second on the cross. Isn't that beautiful? So these people, their sins will forever be remembered. Now just imagine that. How many of you get very upset and your stomach churns and your heart races at the thought of one of your sins? You feel guilt. Anybody with me on that? Can you imagine carrying all your sins forever and never forgotten? Carried on your own head right into hell forever. These people, their sin will forever be remembered. Now, here's a point I really want to make. I'm going to drive this home. And any good that they did in their lives will forever be forgotten. You say, any good that they did? Yeah, look, you can't do anything good enough to save yourself, but it's even worse than that. You could spend your whole life working in a food bank feeding hungry people, and when life is over and everybody's died anyways, what did it mean if you're unsaved and you're not proclaiming the gospel with it? Are you with me? You could spend your whole life doing a lot of really good things, but in the end, if there's no eternity behind it, if there's no God in it, if you're just going to go and be destroyed, you're, you're going to suffer in hell forever, this world is coming to an end. Any good that you did really is of no effect in the end. So the judgment of the unredeemed is people whose sins will always be remembered and any good that they did will always be forgotten in the sense that it couldn't save them and it's gone now. It didn't matter. Now watch this. The judgment of the saved or the judgment of you and I, the judgment of the redeemed, we are people who have put our sin on Jesus Christ. And so any sin that we have committed in our life is forever forgotten. Now with the unsaved, the sin was always remembered. With the saved, the sin is always forgotten. With the unsaved, the good is always forgotten. Now here's the problem with the judgment of the saved. The question for us becomes, not a matter of our sin, that's gone. The question becomes, what heavenly reward, what investment did we make that will survive? Because the Bible is very clear that it's possible that all of this could be gone from you when you stand before Jesus Christ. And you'll go to heaven, but you will suffer loss. Now, how that flushes itself out, if any of you are interested, I have a good, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, how could we still be happy in heaven if we've suffered loss? And that, that's a whole other theological question that's kind of easily answered. Um, Wayne Grudem does a good job of that in his systematic theology book, which I was reading about. But here's, but suffice it to say right now, what I want to emphasize is it's possible that you lose reward. And the question becomes, when I stand before Jesus, not whether my sin went on him, on the cross, my sin was punished. I won't be punished. But this is a matter of the resolution of my life. What is going to be left of my days as a Christian when I walk into heaven? Now you say, Shelley, what are you talking about? All right, I'm glad you asked. So you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to show you one of the saddest passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the context at the beginning is divisions in the church. 
The church is arguing over which, you know, what Bible teacher to follow. Some people are promoting Apollos and following Apollos. Some people following Paul. And the Apostle Paul is basically saying, look, this is wrong. You shouldn't be dividing over Bible teachers or who to follow. There shouldn't be divisions in the church. And here's what he, here's how he explains it in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive, now look at this, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Look, you should underline that in your Bible. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, in staff meeting the other day, I shared something with the staff. I said, look, it was a really cool thing, and I won't belabor the story, but the Norwin Middle School um, at their CU at the pole, they went from having no students or like one or two students in the past five years or so to having 55 students pray at the pole at the public Norwin Middle School. And you know who that was initiated by? Two of our youth group boys went to their principal and said, could we do see you at the poll and pass out flyers? It was incredible. Fifty-five kids come. And, and some, of our, some of our other youth group people were there, and, and they, just, oh, they just went on and gave. I'll, I'll never forget it as long as I live. You have 55 kids. Some kids just got off the bus and joined the circle because there was, like, nothing better to do. You know, maybe we'll be late for class if we join the circle. So the circle keeps expanding, and, and all of a sudden the prayers kind of died down, and one of our youth group girls spoke up, and she said, I'll never forget this. She said, excuse me. Do you all know why you're standing in this circle? I thought, I just kind of stepped back, you know, because I was in the background there. I stepped back and she said, we're praying to God. And this is why we pray to God. And then another one picked it up and said, and if you want to know more about the Jesus that we're talking about, you grab one of those Gospel of John's that's in the middle of the circle. I mean, they were witnessing. And it was incredible. And I went to staff meeting and I said this. I said, it just blows my mind because although they're in youth group now, do you know how many people planted and watered for us to get to that point? First of all, Pastor Bob is the pastor of our church. And without his leadership, there would be no youth group here. There would be no guidance. There would be no direction because that's who God is called to do it. Then I said to Cindy, Cindy Barnhart is the secretary of our church. And without her, things just don't happen here. How many of you know that? You think pastor's the head guy. Okay, so anyway, so you got Sydney. And then I said, and do you know how many people? you got Vicky doing worship, and our kids are growing in worship of the Lord, and you've got the Wednesday night program. I don't even know all the people that have taught these kids before I even came to Norwood Alliance Church. And they planted, and they watered, and they watered. And so Shelly Prindle comes on the scene, and this year I get to see the results as they begin to grow. But I'm nothing, and Pastor Bob's nothing, and Cindy's nothing, and Vicky's nothing, and everybody that taught them is nothing. Who is everything? God. So Paul says, don't divide over this. Rejoice no matter who plants, no matter who reaps. Okay? Can you tell I get a little bit excited about this? Okay, but here's what he said. But here's what he said. Now look at this. Each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Now I want to use this as an example, and I know Cindy won't care. She'll just hit me later on. You know, she'll just slap me around later on when we're in private, okay? So let's take Cindy for an example. She may think that answering the phone in the secretary's office and doing all the daily things that she has to do don't really amount to much spiritually, but it does. God called Cindy to be faithful to answer the phone when it rings. She called her to, he called her to be faithful to help organize Pastor Bob and to make sure that everybody knows what's going on in the church. And it may not seem very spiritual, but in fact what Cindy is doing is she's being faithful, 1 Corinthians 4-2, to the calling that God gave her. Amen? And how many agree that without her or the person that God puts in that position, things aren't going to happen? So I believe when Cindy stands before the Lord, and I can't judge her motivations, if the motivations of her heart were right, she receives as good and maybe better reward than I do for standing up here preaching to you, depending on my motivations and how well I fulfill what God called me to do. Amen? So I want you to underline this in your Bible if you're an underliner, and never forget, each one will receive his wages according to his labor. And, and God's very clear here. He says, you're not just going to receive wages. You're not going to just go to heaven and everybody gets the same 
uh, the same pay. And it's not really pay because we haven't earned it. You see what I'm saying? But he says, it's going to differ. You will get rewarded according to how you labored in what God gave you. Now, I don't have time to go there, but if you think I'm nuts on this, you read Luke chapter 19 and the parable of the minas, the ten minas. All right? He who did something, he who did the most with the minas that Jesus gave him, ruled over the most number of cities when he gets to heaven. And by the way, we will be ruling and reigning. Amen? Isn't that exciting? Finally, we get to rule and reign over something, you know, when we're in heaven. And, and he who did mediocre with the minas, then he ruled over five cities. And he that was not faithful to what he had to do in this life, guess what? He didn't get to do anything. Nothing major. So you're going to receive your reward according to your labor. Now, Paul goes on. Watch this. Look at verse 10. Now, specifically, the context is Paul is talking about Bible teachers. But you can expand it to everybody and the way we're supposed to live and build our life and doctrine. Watch this in verse 10. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we're talking about saved people building on the gospel or the foundation of Jesus Christ. But here's where it gets scary. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, and his words kind of hang there, verse 13, Each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, the judgment day, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But notice that little word, if. If, look at this, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, I don't know what your version says. What what does your version, the NIV, say? He will what? Yeah, ESV, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, when I gave the announcement for this message a couple Sundays ago, here's what I said. You picture a man who has spent all of his life and all of his money and all of his time building a log cabin, a beautiful log cabin in the woods and furnishing it. And at the end of his days, after many, many years, the log cabin suddenly catches on fire and he realizes it and he runs out in time to save himself. He's not even been burnt. And he runs out, but he looks behind, and he sees in the scene behind him, everything he has worked on his entire life is up in smoke. It's gone. And I said, when I announced this on that Sunday, I said, you could look at this story in one way. You could say, that's just the most wonderful miracle I ever heard of, because the guy survived, you know? But you could look at it in another way, too. And you could say, that's one of the greatest tragedies I've ever heard of. Everything that man lived for is gone. Up in smoke. You know what Erwin Lutzer said in his comment about this? Dr. Lutzer, pastor of Moody Bible Church. Here's what he said. The imagery that Paul uses is that as as they enter heaven, their lives will collapse behind them. Everything will go up in smoke. What a tragedy. Sobering. And I was outside. I took a minute outside to pray before I came in and I was by the youth room doors and I said, God, please help me, you know, because I know there are times when I'm preaching for the wrong reasons or like, what am I doing with myself? I said, God, please help me that what I invest my life in not go up in smoke. Everybody needs recreation and rest, but God, please help me not to waste my minutes. Please help me not to focus on the mundane and what doesn't really matter. Please help me, God. Because I want to tell you something, whether you want to believe it or not, whether you want to put it out of your mind or not, everything you do, the minutes you spend, the life you live, 
How much or how little you pray, how much or how little you read this Bible, how much or how little you witness, your life you will answer for. And it is possible that what you're living for will go up in smoke and you will run out. You will be saved. But you'll suffer loss. And that hurts not only us, but it hurts the heart of God. Now, as I was preparing this message, I want to share with you here as the last part just to get the point across. Well, you know that um, many times what I like to use is an example from nature to show something that God is revealing to us. And Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that since the creation of the world, God is revealing himself through the created order in certain ways. I don't know. How many of you have ever heard of something called the butterfly effect? Okay. I have a book. It's written by Andy Andrews. And a friend gave it to me after um, after I had to leave the Christian school that I'd been at and left the life that I knew. She gave me this book and she said, don't forget that everything you've ever done has a meaning and a purpose and it's not lost. And um, the book is interesting. Now, Andy Andrews, I believe, is a Christian, but in the book he doesn't really emphasize the spiritual part of this. But... Um, The butterfly effect, in a nutshell, is that a man whose last name is Lorenz in the 1960s was a scientist at MIT, and he was experimenting with mathematical equations and how to take those equations to predict weather patterns. And long story short, what happened is He plugged in information into this set of 12 equations. They're called differential equations. And he plugged in information, and he found that, you know, loading in all these pieces of data about different, you know, wind velocity and where the the air molecules and all that would predict weather patterns pretty well. So he tried to test it, and he ran it over again. When he ran it a second time, instead of loading in five digits, the decimal point with five digits behind it, He only loaded in three to save time. So the first time he put each number in or each piece of data, he was taking a number out to five decimal places. But to save time, the second time he entered it, he only put the information into three decimal places. Now, how many of you think two tiny decimal places hanging off the end, you know, that difference would make a real big deal, all right? But in fact, what happened was, and I think I have it here on the screen, yes, it would be like this. In one of the equations that I'm going to put up on the screen, point five zero 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 one was entered. And in one of the equations, point five zero 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 two was entered. How many of you think those are pretty close numbers? Right? But what happens is, even with that tiny little bit of difference at the end, the equations, see the blue line and the red line at the very end? See how different they end up being, even though the numbers were were, were so close? In the beginning, the function almost to the middle of the graph looks like a perfect mirror of one another. But that tiny little difference in the initial number in these equations, which are chaotic equations, differential equations, these chaotic type equations, making the tiny difference causes them in the end to have a completely different effect. And so an initial difference of two millionth of a percent has been increased to a difference in output of 90%, which is a 45 million times increase. It's really wild stuff. But what happened with this guy, Lorenz, is he went to the, uh, I think, the New York Academy of Science in 1963, and he proposed, he said, look, what I've found by doing these experiments is that even the tiniest change in a weather condition out to that many decimal places can really cause the whole picture of the weather pattern that's going to happen to change completely. And he actually stood in front of these people and said, I'm proposing, actually, that if a butterfly flaps its wings on one part of the planet, it can cause the displacement of air molecules that could potentially cause a hurricane on the other side of the planet. And they laughed him out of the place. They were like, you're nuts. That's crazy. But he believed it wholeheartedly on what had happened in his experiment. Thirty years later, a group of scientists and physicists all over the world tested what had become or thought was just fiction. 
And no longer is this a theory. It is now called the law, the scientific law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions because it has been shown that the tiniest change, and I believe it applies to about 20% of the globe at any time, is an area that is sensitive to initial conditions. So at any time, 20% of our globe, it is true that a butterfly could flap its wings and cause the weather pattern to completely change on the other side of the planet. This guy came to discover this, and I don't think it's any accident, because I believe in everything physical God shows us, there's a spiritual truth, and I want to say something to you. You may think that not smiling down the third aisle of Walmart on any particular afternoon when you're quite irritated with your life makes no difference. But there may be somebody walking down the third aisle of Walmart who just sent a desperate prayer up to God and said, God, if you're real, could somebody smile at me? Could somebody show me human kindness? There are endless numbers of things. I think to myself, when I was outside praying, I thought, God, if I don't go outside and circle this parking lot and pray, what spiritual thing will not happen in the sanctuary this evening because I didn't flap my wing? Amen? It is unbelievable how the smallest things, and here's, here's what I want to add to this. You know, we did a giveaway. We did the, um, what was our most recent giveaway? We have so many of them. Turkeys, toys. Okay, so most recently we had the garage sale and diaper giveaway. And we happened to have two extra brand new backpacks full of supplies from the leftover from the backpack giveaway. And so I prayed. I said, God, please show us who needs these backpacks. You know, let let some young people come in, and they were girls' backpacks, who need these. And I prayed that. And sure enough, two girls came in together, and they looked about the age that would like these backpacks. And um, I walked up to them, and I had one backpack on each arm. And I said, excuse me, I said, could you girls use some backpacks for school? And they took a look at those backpacks, and they were like, their eyes lit up. And I could tell by the way that they were dressed and the situation, I could tell that there was definite need. And I'd ask God to lead me that direction. And, I, and they said, yes, you know. And they both looked at me, like maybe about 11, 12 years old, and they were so excited. And I said, and they're full of new supplies. And they both kind of looked at each other like total, incredible shock. I can't believe it. And they put them on their backs and they walked around a little bit and then they took them off their backs and they opened them up and they started looking at the stuff inside. And you would think that, you know, you had given them five million dollars and I could tell beyond the shadow of a doubt that these girls were going to go to school differently on Monday because they had a backpack they could be proud of. That's wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, it's kind of wonderful. But let me just tell you something. If we don't do outreaches prayerfully, if we just give away backpacks at North Alliance Church, that's nice. And for a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, maybe the entire school year, a couple girls will be happier for about six months, feel prouder at school. In the big scheme of things, so what? If they die... And go to hell. That moment of happiness with a new backpack. Guess what? Up in smoke. Yeah. That's what struck me that day. Wood, hay, and straw are works that we do that are not eternally minded. You can work at a at a soup kitchen five days a week as a volunteer. You can put offering in the Norman Alliance Church offering plate every week that you want to. You can be kind. You can volunteer. You can give stuff away. But let me tell you something. Do it with a prayerful 
heart. Do it with a spiritual mind. Change the wood, hay, and straw to gold, silver, and precious stones. Amen? You can give and help. We can feed the poor. We can house the homeless. And it is a wonderful thing. And even Jesus, when he preached, he fed people. Amen? We need to meet needs. I'm not saying that we don't do that. But if we're only doing that and we're not really living for eternal things, it will be gone. We need to invest in what is eternal. And I know that's the heartbeat behind what we do here. You need to have a very strong prayer life if you don't want your life to go up in smoke. You need to, you may think, why do I, why do I need to study the Bible so much? Why do I need to memorize so much? Because when you have the word hidden in your heart, you don't sin against God and it comes out to others. Amen? Because knowing the word to speak to somebody else, building into somebody else's life, having an effect that is eternal on somebody else, that is the gold, silver, and precious stones that will not be destroyed by the fire. Amen? The question is, Are we flapping our wings? We may feel we're only a butterfly, only a small creature in one section of Walmart. I'm only a mom washing dishes in my house. I'm only a secretary. I'm only an accountant. I'm only this. I'm only that. Every single thing you do has an effect. What you don't do and what you do, do. And we will stand before God someday and answer for every time we failed to pray, every time we failed to study, every time we failed to smile, failed to witness, failed to invest in the things that last forever. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me?